Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Sheffield, where at King Edward's School her talents for the sciences earned her a place at Cambridge University. Whilst not initially party political, she was interested in politics from a young age, right for her career as a science teacher, business owner, and then raising her three children. Soon, the draw towards politics became too strong, and her career changed track. She began her political career as a parish councillor before eventually standing for the Conservative Party in the 2019 general election. She won the swing vote and has been championing issues such as levelling up online harms and gender politics ever since. On her beliefs, my guest said, if you give people control over their money, family and lives, they generally make good decisions. The basis of conservatism is to give people autonomy and to trust them. My guest today is Miriam Cates. Miriam, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. And we always begin by saying, how would you describe your childhood? Was it a happy one? Yeah, very happy childhood. And my parents are amazing people. And probably as all children, I didn't realise that at the time, but I certainly do now. And you growing up in Sheffield. So at the time during the era, was it, you know, pretty industrial? What, what was it like growing up? Yes, I mean, my, I'm from a fairly typical middle class family, but um, certainly Sheffield in the 80s and 90s was both industrial and very political. And I remember at primary school in the 80s, we sang rhymes about Thatcher and how we wanted her dead. And, you know, in secondary school, my secondary school was absolutely socialist to its core. And it was very, you know, we, we call Sheffield the capital of the People's Republic of South Yorkshire. And again, you know, it was all I knew. But looking back on it now, certainly things that happened at school shaped my ideas as conservative. So it's very interesting looking back now. I mean, you know, no competition was allowed in my primary school. Even the few of us who were good at maths, they took the textbooks off us so that we couldn't compete against each other. Uh, And it was the same in secondary school. And a friend that I knew at school who I reconnected with recently, because it turns out he worked for Ian Duncan Smith and Bill Cash. You know, we both reminisced about how our schooling made us conservatives. Were your parents political? Because I mentioned in the introduction how it took you a while to probably become party political. So you've got perhaps socialist vibes at school. What was it at home? Um, my parents aren't party political. They're interested in current affairs and, you know, certainly bought newspapers and we talked about topics. But no, they weren't party political. And in 97, which was the first general election I really remember, I was 14, I got a poster from every single political party, including the referendum party, and put them up in my parents' front windows. And I even had a Lib Dem, you know, one of the boards in the front garden just because I was really interested in the political process and I recognise now how embarrassing that must have been for my parents. I was say, that must have been so confusing for people walking past. <laughs> well I think that was part of the idea because we lived on a road where lots of students walked up and down the street but yeah, I was just really interested in the political process and political ideas but like you say not particularly uh, supporting a party. And I mentioned that you went to study at Cambridge so were you a teacher's pet because you obviously had to have quite good grades was it like effortless academic brilliance? Um, <laughs> Well, hopefully I wasn't teacher's pet. I mean, you know, I enjoyed school. I was very fortunate in that exams suited me and I had huge support from my mum and dad who are both, you know, very bright and able to help me with all the academic work. And um, what did they both do for their jobs? Um, my dad's a doctor and my mum's got a maths degree, although um, she didn't work when she was raising us. You know, so they're very incredibly supportive. I was just one of those lucky kids that school really suited me and I had a great group of friends who were also competitive keen and bright and I suppose we spurred each other on and and then 
you're coming to graduation. What are you thinking about in terms of career? At this point, were you thinking at all about politics career or not really? No, not at all. As I said, as a child, I had been very interested in politics, but I'd always thought it was the kind of thing that there'd have to be an opportunity that opened up because I had no idea how to get into it. And I, you know, science was my love. I had thought about being a teacher before, but I think after three years of quite intense academic stretching I was ready for some time out so I went back to Sheffield did a gap year I wasn't intending to stay but met my my husband he was settled there and we did end up staying Um, and you now have three children yes three children Um, so did that affect your career Yes. So before I had the first child, I was I trained to be a science teacher and I was working as a science teacher when I was pregnant with my eldest. I went back a year later and again after the second one. And then I decided that much as I loved teaching, which I really did, it was very difficult to balance it with small kids and my husband's business. And I really decided it was the right time to just step away from it for the time being. And I supported my husband a bit in his business, but basically it was a stay at home mom. And then at some point you become a parish councillor. Um, so how, how did that come back? Because I suppose that was probably the gateway. Yes. Into, I mean, yes. You know, so, so as I said, so at this point you're a Tory or? No, no, I was independent. So, oh. so as I said, I grew up in Sheffield, but very much urban. You know, I was a city girl. We went out to the countryside for walks, but that was about all I knew. But when, after we'd had our eldest, we moved out of Sheffield into a village called Utebridge, which is just off the north. And, um, We got involved in village life and I had no idea that that kind of community still existed. And I just totally fell in love with it. And I joined the PTA and my husband became a school governor and we organised stuff for mums and dads at school. And, you know, and eventually I got asked to join the parish council. And I didn't really know what a parish council was and certainly not how it related to different levels of government. But I just absolutely loved it. I mean, it is a little bit Vicar of Dibley, but the ability to work with other people to make a community better, to have pots of money that you can work out how to spend and have campaigns to save the park and things like that. I just really enjoyed it. And I thought, you know, I want to do more of this. And that's what made me think about standing for city council. But at that point, I realised I couldn't be an independent and go any further. You mentioned, obviously, Vicar Dibley when it comes to parish council um, in terms of my, like, there's also more, most recently Jackie Weaver, you know, like, you don't have the authority. Um, was there anything? Was there anything like that during a time as a parent? Oh, it wasn't as exciting debates? as no. that. Um, we did have a discussion about which village has the best trough. I remember, um, but certainly the he clerks. Did. <laughs> yes, he did. But I mean, the clerks are actually amazing. And I've because I've got a rural constituency, I have a lot of parish councils, and the clerks are so professional, so knowledgeable. I mean, they really are the backbone of the parish council system. So I've got utmost respect for clerks but no I mean it it was of course we had arguments but it was very functional and very effective I think everywhere should have a parish council you mentioned that you realize if you're going to go further you're going to have to be a member of a political party so at that point did you do some soul searching or or was it quite instinctive to you that if you were going to pick a party you'd go well having grown up in Sheffield my automatic assumption was if I want to get elected, I've got to join the Labour Party. Yeah. Uh, and this was my kind of working assumption until I looked into what they really thought about things. And of course, it was the time when Corbyn was the leader. So I thought even if I tried to join the Labour Party, they probably wouldn't have me. But, you know, this was the point when I did start to seriously look at what the different parties believed. So I decided I wasn't going to join the Labour Party. I looked at the Lib Dems because they do have some safe areas in Sheffield but again it was during Brexit time and I couldn't kind of reconcile and I kind of left it at that and then a family friend out of the blue rang me and said would I stand for the Conservatives in an unwinnable ward in Sheffield 
my first thought was who would be a Tory in Sheffield, you know, having grown up there. But I just, something about it stuck and I thought, yeah, I'm going to go for it. And I campaigned and I enjoyed it. And yeah, rest is history. Because at that point, is it is it Theresa May or Boris Johnson who's... So that must have been Theresa May because that was... So the local election that I stood for was May 2018. Didn't win. But yeah, that was Theresa May. And that experience of being a Tory in Sheffield made you think, be a Tory MP. (laughs) Well, it's a bit more convoluted than that. But essentially, I really enjoyed the campaigning. I enjoyed knocking on people's doors. It was the time of the kind of political realignment. So the reception was probably a lot warmer than it would have been 10 years before. And to cut a long story short, I went to party conference for 24 hours in October 2018. First time I'd left the kids, I think. And um, I bumped into Baroness Anne Jenkin, who runs Women to Win, which is the Conservative Party's organisation for getting more women into politics. And three weeks later, I was a candidate for Penison of Soxbridge. And you overturn a Labour majority and become an MP. I suppose, just like briefly, during that election campaign, did you feel as though it was going to happen? Or is it hard to tell when you're knocking on doors? Um... Yes, from the day the election was called, I was pretty convinced that I was going to win. And, I, you know, I was not experienced in the campaigning. This is my first general election I'd been involved in, let alone standing in. But we couldn't find anybody who wanted to vote Labour. We found people who were voting Labour reluctantly because their grandparents and great-grandmas had done. But the enthusiasm was for Conservatives, for Boris, for Brexit. And, you know, actually somebody I know well decided on the first day that I'd get a majority of about 7,000. And I did. So, you know, it was pretty clear during the campaign that we were going to win. You enter Parliament. Uh, What surprises you? I think the first few weeks were just utterly overwhelming and because it was a winter election so very unusual situation and brexit so we came the election was on the thursday results on the friday we're in parliament on the monday and we passed the withdrawal agreement on the friday i mean it was absolutely crazy and in that time trying to learn what is an mp what do you do how does the house of commons work i mean just utterly overwhelming and then of course by the time we've settled in in march it's covid I suppose what surprised me how supportive the House of Commons is and how supportive senior colleagues are. It's a very, very nice place to work, I think. You know, you hear all sorts of stories in the media, but overwhelmingly it's a very supportive place. The workload surprised me. It's just, yeah, <laughs> indescribable. Um, did you have any particular kind of Tory colleagues step in and show you the ropes, take you on tools? Or... Um, we weren't assigned mentors, which apparently is normal practice, but there were so many of us, 107, that I think it, they couldn't organise it in time. But, I mean, you know, lots of very senior people have been so helpful. Ian Duncan-Smith, Andrea Ledsom, people who really know the ropes being very helpful. Now, you mentioned the pandemic, and I think it was lots of people when they talk about the 2019 intake, and I wonder what you think about it in the sense, like, they're so badly behaved, they're so independent. It's because they spent all this time at home during the pandemic so they didn't have enough time maybe in parliament to learn the practice there's nothing wrong with being independently minded absolutely um but during that period of course we have a pandemic lockdowns continuously and you were one of the mps who was quite vocal about your concerns about lockdown did you have colleagues at the time telling you, you know be quiet behave or anything like that well certainly the first time i rebelled on a vote the whips who in my experience always behave well try very hard to persuade me not to as they should that's their job but that was on that was on restrictions was that it was on one of the restrictions votes yes and then after that they kind of left me alone Uh, but then of course there was a growing body of mps who were 
becoming very sceptical of the, the lockdown measures. But I think, of course, it's not an easy thing to rebel against your own party. And by and large, I think it's very important that people vote with their party, because otherwise, how do you get through the legislation that people have voted for? But COVID was not in the manifesto. And locking down healthy people was not in the manifesto. And I think... Maybe it's an excuse that I'm making for myself, but I think there's a very good moral reason for not um, supporting those policies, you know, at first hand. And going back to your point about is the 2019 intake particularly rebellious? I'm not sure. I'd have to look at the stats. But I think as well as having a lot of time away from Parliament, we've also got strength of numbers. You know, the caucus of 107 is a big block. And I think that gives people confidence that we will be listened to at the very least, which I think is only a good thing. Yeah, unlike the 2017 gang. Like, not many of them. They, they can't do anything. They, they don't <laughs> have enough to overturn that. a vote in this one. <laughs> no, that's that's me being mean. <laughs> Definitely not you. Financing on the pandemic. I mean, I, I remember you wrote a piece, I think, for Unheard, criticising a focus on protecting the elderly and the long-term impact on lockdown of young people's lives. It feels, at the time, it was lots of people kind of we're very critical of anyone who did question lockdown. But now we are seeing so many of the impacts, which, you know, it's not just one of the factors in terms of the state of the economy, but also on education, yeah. core backlogs. Yeah. Do you get a sense that people now are, are perhaps taking some of those criticisms a bit more seriously, but the more time has passed? Yes, absolutely. I mean, and even the government has completely U-turned on the policy of closing schools. And when Nadim Zahari was education secretary, and he was a very good education secretary, in my opinion, but when he was education secretary, he did actually come out and say it was a mistake to close schools. And of course, our schools were closed for longer than anywhere else in Europe apart from Italy and with catastrophic consequences. And of course, I'm really pleased that that is being recognised and all the evidence now is very supportive of the fact that we perhaps shouldn't have locked down as long or as hard. But it was very difficult at the time. And I think there is a number of different things happened. First of all, people were frightened. And of course, when you're fearful, you look for authority to just tell you what to do. I think we had this very unhealthy obsession with following the science. I don't think you can follow science. I don't think you can follow science any more than can follow history. I think it can give you information, but essentially we needed moral, political, wise decisions rather than blindly following data. And like you say, there was this kind of almost cancel culture on anybody who questioned the prevailing ideas of the day. And I think what we really needed was someone to tell us the truth, which was this is a pandemic. People are going to die. Mostly that will be elderly people. We are going to do our best to shield those elderly people, but you know, society is like a machine. You can't just take one piece out and expect the rest to keep going. We've got to do everything we can to make sure our society keeps going. Otherwise, the consequences will be catastrophic, which they have been. Now, you talk about leadership. We've also had a change of, well, two. Yeah, I've lost (laughs) track at this point. Uh, You know, we wanted three Tory leaders in 2022. See if it will just be one leader this year. Yeah, hope. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Join that. That must be something you never anticipated in 2019 no and when we arrived on the back of a very turbulent period of politics I remember the existing conservative MPs saying to us oh thank goodness we've got five years now finally stability this massive majority what can go wrong you know so yeah and unexpected you bet to had a brave man in the first leadership contest, obviously. In the second one, you bet Rishi Sunak. And mm-hmm. um, what made you bet to had a brave man? Because she's one of those figures who has lots of people who are full of praise, of strong following, but also I think in the media particularly can be quite heavily criticised. Mm. Yes, I think Suella is absolutely fantastic. She's got a real passion um, for what she's 
doing in politics. She's strong. Uh, she's also very personable. She's very genuine. And I think one of the things that Boris was, was criticised for was not following through. It was constantly responding to media outrage and not really sticking with tough decisions. And that's something that, that Suella has in spades is an ability to power through. And um, now we have Rishi Sunak, obviously, with Suella Braveman in a senior role. Do you think he's better at sticking with difficult decisions than... Yes, I do. I do. And, I, you know, again, you read all sorts of criticisms of him in the press. But I think things like the immigration issue are a good test of that. People said, oh, he's not he's not saying anything. He's not coming out and doing anything. Where is he? But actually, the truth was he was behind the scenes working out exactly what was wrong with the system, getting to get to the detail before being ready to announce what the government was going to do. And I know that doesn't suit everybody, but I, I think that is that's a good strategy. And I do think he's got what it takes to resist some of the outrage that's going on. So he needs to stay firm. Yes, he needs to stay firm. <laughs> we mentioned rebellions and I think it's an interesting one now because we're moving from a period and perhaps we, we will never move from this period, but it feels at least we're moving from some of the turbulence of 2022 to Rishi Sunak as prime minister. But there is a tendency whenever there is a rebellion in the House of Commons to say, you know, this is another sign the Tory party is ungovernable. And you recently were quite instrumental in a rebellion on the online harms bill, which was... Um, uh, you know, looking at strengthening up the consequences for tech bosses if they if they don't protect children online. And you had a victory. Yes. <laughs> you had a victory in terms of changing the legislation. Mm. But I wonder what you make when people say, oh, it's just another sign the Tories can't get behind something. Mm. Well, I, you see, I don't see it like that at all because... First of all, it wasn't a rebellion. I absolutely support the online safety bill. So did everybody else who supported the amendment. I was never going to vote against the bill. I saw it as this is what MPs are here to do. This is what backbenchers are here to do, to scrutinise the government, to scrutinise legislation and to suggest change where change is needed. And the government doesn't have a monopoly on good ideas. And we put forward an amendment to test its strength, to test its support. We managed to get 50 Conservative MPs to sign it, which showed that it had enough support to potentially win a vote. And then, of course, the government knows that this is a serious move and you can negotiate. And I know that the papers like to sell that as a rebellion because it, you know, it sells papers, of course, but it wasn't a rebellion. I don't see it like that. I see it as MPs doing their job and we were ultimately successful. And now we do have a world leading bill because potentially the consequence for letting children see harmful material is jail. Exactly. So it's not a proxy for some fight against Rishi's authority. Absolutely. Exactly. No, I mean, this is a, no, I think yeah, it's really interesting because yeah. right now it becomes like, Oh, it's this and this because of the year we've had, but yeah. Yeah, no, difficult to distinguish sometimes. <laughs> um, and then I want to talk to you about gender issues because that's something where, um, so ahead of this podcast, I had people tweeting me being like, why has Miriam Kate's not been on your podcast? What are you playing at? <laughs> and um, I think particularly there was an uptick in these messages after the gender reform debate in the Commons. I think we'll play a clip here. As a woman, I fully understand uh, the threats to dignity and safety that this poses because it will change the social contract in this country. We recognise that in toilets, in changing rooms, in public spaces, there are areas where only women allow, are allowed. I had an experience recently in a restaurant where uh, a man dressed as a woman walked into the toilets. I was on my own in the toilets. He stood behind me and stared at me into the mirror, looking at me in my eyes. Now, I have no idea if he intended me any harm, but, but, but my instinct, my evolved instinct as a woman was to be frightened because unlike almost any other species, women are far less powerful than men. We can't defend ourselves. The idea of linking trans people with predators, frankly, is disgusting, and you should be ashamed. Oh, 
No, calm down. Yes. That was um, a speech you made about ultimately a woman's biology, mm. about gender reform, which led to Lloyd Russell Moyle, who's a Labour MP, being quite, I don't know, what would you describe it? He was just heckling, like. Exercised. <laughs> yeah, uh, lost control of his emotions, shall we say. Did it put you off in the background or? Well, every time I've spoken on this issue in the chamber, while I've been speaking, I've been loudly heckled by the opposition. The first time it happened, I was quite caught off guard. But I now expect that. So I was speaking loudly and I was not paying attention to them while I was speaking. But I wasn't expecting that kind of emotional outburst, shall we say. And it, it was unpleasant, but, you know, I, I was in a safe place. I was surrounded by supportive colleagues. It was in a public place. And as unpleasant as it was, it is nothing compared to what a lot of women experience on a daily basis when trying to speak up about this issue. And again, at the end of the day, it might have been unpleasant for me, but I'm not going to lose my job. Lots of women can't speak up about this because they genuinely would lose their job if they did. Um, do you get much abuse for, because I mean, you are talking quite repeatedly, not repeatedly, I mean, but you've spoken several times when it comes to what counts as a woman, perhaps some of the dangers of, if you look at the push from the other side when it comes to, um, you know, self-ID, yeah. but also in terms of children and what's yeah. happening. Have you had a lot of criticism or actually do you get more support? How does it break down? Well, I do get vastly more support than criticism. I mean, I'm not on Twitter, which probably helps. Pink News called me sinister. The- <laughs> <laughs> just no Twitter, just what life's too short. Yeah, I was on Twitter until the general election and I got so much abuse um, that I just deleted it. Yeah. I mean, I every so often I do think about going back on because it is can be a useful tool, but at the moment I'm not on it. So that probably reduces the amount of abuse I get. But no, overwhelmingly support uh, by email. People from all over the country email me every single day saying thank you for speaking up on this and sharing some really shocking stories. And I think... I think the debate's shifted in the last couple of weeks because I think what happened with Lloyd Russell Moyle and the Scottish Bill and then, of course, these tragic and horrific cases of male rapists being put in female jails, I think it has shifted the narrative a bit because the elite in institutions can pretend for a certain amount of time that men can be women and women can be men. But when the rubber hits the road and you see images like this, I think ordinary people wake up and say, you know, no more. This is not true. It can't happen. Let's get back to reality. Yeah, and, I, and also there are, there are Labour politicians such as Rosie Duffield who... Yeah, are saying very similar things and probably tougher for them in some ways for their own side I mean that's it when I speak out on this I know that the vast majority of my colleagues and my party are with me and supportive and you saw that in the chamber I mean the number of people that stood up to support me and make points of orders and things like that so I know that I'm protected Rosie is an absolute hero and so is Joanna Cherry and the abuse they face from their own side and continue to do so and the isolation I mean they're incredibly brave for continuing to speak up do you speak to them much on these issues or? yes yeah, I do yeah. and uh, I've got huge admiration for you'd for like both a whatsapp group that would be telling <laughs> um you've been speaking out on issues that you're most passionate about you've also call it rebellion call it amending legislation impacting in that way have you been tempted to become a pps like many of your 2019 colleagues no i mean i have been asked but i think pps is is an important role of course but i am really really passionate about children about education about childhood i think we've lost something fundamental in this country about protecting childhood and at the moment i am I'm on the Education Select Committee. I'm doing things like the Online Safety Bill. I'm collaborating with other people. And I think this is my opportunity to have an influence. And I think being a PPS would make that 
very difficult, less time, less able to speak out on things, not able to challenge the government, which I think does need to happen on some of these issues. Um, so it's not for me. Obviously, the polls are looking challenging, I think we could say at the moment, <laughs> for the Tory party. Um, you have a seat that was previously Labour. There's currently a lot of talk on Tory sleaze. So we're talking yeah. about Nadeem Zahari's um, leftist position. There's more things coming up. Is that something that worries you about the pitch for the next election? Or, or if not, what is it that you think the biggest challenge is going to be? Mm. Well, the image of politicians and sleaze does worry me immensely. And like with a lot of things, it's a mixture of truth and people who have done things wrong and probably shouldn't be in politics, but also some really unpleasant stirring by the media, by social media. I'll give you an example. You know, I'm sure you know how the MP's expenses system works, but you cannot buy anything that is not on the list of things you're allowed to buy. So we don't get a pile of cash and then we spend it on stuff and keep the rest. You know, if you buy pencils and paper for your office, it comes out of the budget. It's just an office budget. Local papers every year run stories on MPs who apparently claim for less than a pound. So if you happen to buy a bunch of post-it notes, which, by the way, your staff members bought, not you, and it's under a pound, you'll get this headline, MP claims 99p. And it feeds into this narrative that all politicians are on the table, which they're not. You know, in every profession, you've got the majority of people who are honest and doing things right, and you've got a few bad apples. It's the same in politics. And of course, there's no excuse for it. But I do worry that the more this narrative pervades, it's not just about Tories, it's about all politicians, that we're on the take and, you know, that we're underhand. I think it's terrible for democracy because who would want to be an MP? How are you going to get the best people if that's the kind of reputation that you know you're going to have? Uh, But you want to stay on as an MP? I do, because for all the difficulty of the job, it is an immense privilege, an immense opportunity. And, you know, it's... uh, yeah, there's no other job like it. And the final question is one we ask everyone on this podcast, um, which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given, whether or not you ignored it or took it at the time and then were like, why did I do that? Um, well, I told you that I went to the party conference in 2018 to kind of explore what this whole thing was about. And I met there an MP who shall remain nameless. And she said to me, well, if you're interested in at all, at all in standing, you better start now because it'll be 10 years before you can get a winnable seat. Uh, And of course, I did start then. (laughs) Three weeks later, I was a candidate and a year later an MP. So I was not prepared for that speed. I was very fortunate. But uh, yeah, that was advice that I did take. Thank you, Miriam. Thanks for joining today. 